This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and a welcome. Toronto is experiencing a surge in gun violence. Between September 9th and 12th, the city saw eight shootings uh, with 11 victims, including the death of a 15-year-old. Constable Andrew Hong, a veteran Toronto police officer, was killed in an unprovoked shooting on Monday while eating lunch at a Tim Hortons in Mississauga. Now, that is the kind of abomination that we would expect in the U.S., not here. The same day, a driver was shot in a carjacking, and then three people were shot in Milton, resulting in one death. So is it a surge in violent thefts, an uptick in gang violence? Uh, And I'd like to know how you feel about it. Is it something that you are wary of, or is it still safe where you live? It's probably still safe everywhere, but, uh, you know, this is something we do have to talk about. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now we begin with John Reed, president of the Toronto Police Association. Thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, good afternoon, Libby. Thank you very much for having me today. So what is your reaction to this, particularly the kind of random active shooter, uh, horrible incident that resulted in the death of uh, Constable Hong? Well, I, I think I can start by saying, you know, to, to say that the members of our service, of his home unit, traffic service, and his family are devastated would be a complete uh, understatement. Um, As you pointed out in your intro there, an incident like this is not common down in the U.S., but it does happen. Prefer it to take place up here in Canada, particularly here in Toronto and the GTA, um, to me is very, very concerning. And I think I can tell you that our members, I think the policing community as a whole, are very concerned, um, as should the public be. I think if you look at this incident here, we have a fully armed, in-uniform officer uh, sitting in a public area in the middle of daytime. And we have an individual who's come and murdered him with no opportunity for him to defend himself and then to go on and uh, shoot another innocent civilian who's you know in their car minding their own business. And then to move on to another uh, workplace um, is concerning. I, I think this really does start pulling at the fabric uh, of our society. And we need to, I think, as a whole, have a look at you know, where we are right now, the way things have been going recently, and where do we want them to go. And, and I'd like to see the public um, voice their concern for uh, this. This individual... Uh, he's now deceased, apparently had a very long criminal record. Yes, so, so the only information that uh, obviously I have is what's being put out in the media, and uh, I understand that. Um, I'm not surprised by it at all. Um, you know, for somebody to go to this length um, is not their their first contact with the justice system. Um, but I think, you know, there's another important conversation there. You know, when we start looking at the criminal history of this individual and what has transpired in the last 36 hours, last 48 hours, you know, they really do bring some tough questions to the forefront. And I realize that, you know, within Canadian society, uh, we want to try and rehabilitate people. But the reality is some people aren't um, able to be rehabilitated. They will continue with a life of crime, continue with violence. And I think as society as a whole, we have to look at at what point does that individual's rights supersede the right of 
um, you know, a member of the public to be in the street and walk around with, with a degree of safety. Let me ask you your take on uh, this carjacking. Well, it's there seems to be a raft of them, but they are seem to be increasingly violent. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, we have always had cars that were stolen, but this level of violence accompanying it, it, it seems different to me. Am I wrong? Right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, so I'm not... Uh... I don't have all the stats on, on, quite frankly, on how many of these carjackings result in actual violence versus a threat of violence. Um, but I think it does, once again, shine a light on what's going on. Um, you know, I'm not hearing the public outrage that I'll be honest, I, I expected to hear in relation to this incident. You know, we have a police officer being murdered. We have uh, members of the public who are just going about their daily business, trying to conduct a business being murdered. And, you know, for that not to raise flags with the public is concerning to me. And, and it is important. And I really do want the public to think about this. Where do we want our society to go? And we need to make sure that we understand when decisions are made as far as laws, you know, at the federal level, what is going on? And that's really where the tone starts with the federal government. And we need to start looking at um, increased sentences increased bail conditions, increased parole, um, you know, to try and move that conversation forward. We've been advocating very, very heavily for increased bail uh, reform and parole reform uh, to try and curtail some of the violence. Okay. John Reed, thank you so much for being with us. Great. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. let us now bring in Reverend Sky Starr, who is the founder and executive director of Out of Bounds, which provides grief and trauma support to victims of gun violence. And Joseph Newberger, a criminal defense lawyer with Newberger and Partners. And I see our phone lines are uh, filling up. We will get to those. Uh, welcome to our guests. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Thank you, Libby. Joseph, uh, uh, John Reed mentioned uh, easy bail conditions. That's something that even the mayor has talked about it. What is your view of that? I, I First of all, I want to reflect what, what Don had said. This is a unspeakable tragedy with a tremendous loss to the uh, community, the Toronto Police Service, and the loss of a civilian life, and not to mention the others who are injured. So this is extremely serious and and. You know, my sympathies go out to everybody. But the concern I have is the immediate reaction is to then relate the criminal justice system and bail reform to a particular violent act, which um, I don't quite understand because every person charged with a criminal offense or a serious uh, criminal offense can't be preemptively jailed until trial and then kept in jail indefinitely if they think there's a risk profile that might put them at risk of committing an offense sometime down the road. So we have to be very careful, and politicians typically, and unfortunately, play on these events uh, to try and create reforms which only speak to a very limited number of cases. So let me just put this into perspective. Uh, All we know about uh, this shooter, who's now dead, was that he was off parole in 2012. And he had a criminal record spanning 20 years, robbery, property offenses, drug trafficking, possession of a weapon. In 2015 and 16, he was charged. I think one of them was a child pornography, and the other one uh, was another offense, which was withdrawn. So there was a gap, really, of a number of years of any other offenses that this person had committed. So it wasn't an issue of somebody who was out on bail, Uh, for a gun-related offense and had committed this crime. So I want to just pause there for a moment so that we have, you know, proper reflection. This wasn't uh, somebody who was on release right now. The other thing we have to consider is this individual who walked up to a police officer having lunch, shot him without giving him, you know, any warning, uh, then shot somebody uh, to take, you know, initially to take the jeep. Then went to his former employer and killed him. This person knew they were going to die. This was not somebody who was trying to commit a number of offenses and get away with it, or have any sort of rational explanation to it. 
this was a person that was basically on some sort of a mission uh, to to either uh, create some vendetta in his own mind or enact it for whatever reason, and then had a, a very high likelihood of never going to survive this. So this is also some sort of a detachment from any type of rational thinking. It's a level of evilness and, and horror as a result of it. But I mean, they were, I, I think, you know, understanding and determined to die. So how do you, how do you predict that as a risk factor? Um, so let's, I know I'm going long. Yeah, let's, saying- let's, let's bring in, uh, Reverend Starr. Uh, so, uh, what's your view of this? When we heard from the head of the police association, his solution was toughening up our laws, toughening up sentences. And you've just heard Joseph's, uh, uh objections to that and caveats to that. What's your view, Reverend Starr? Well, I, I think it starts with education, and I think uh, that all levels of government need to come together to create. This is a multi-pronged um, issue. We've just finished, out of bones just finished doing a, a level of panel discussions on seeing gun violence as a public health issue. And I think this is where we start. Education, first of all, to the government, who needs to know that this is a multi-pronged situation that is detrimental to communities and to people in general. So it starts with prevention, intervention measures, and all levels of government coming together, including community partners who are working on the ground to solve the issue. Uh, now, we hear a lot of uh, explanations for the issue, especially in neighborhoods that are not privileged in difficult neighborhoods. But there's also, uh, and I think Joseph was alluding to this, a mental health aspect or what what's commonly called suicide by cop. Joseph, do you think, is that what this looks like to you? I don't know if it's specifically suicide by a police officer, but it's certainly somebody who knew that they were not going to walk away from this. And they clearly wanted to create havoc and kill a former employer. So there's a heavy degree of irrationality here. And I agree that, you know, we have mental health issues that are at play, including personality issues. And and I absolutely agree that this is a multifaceted uh, problem where we have to look at many, many factors. But mental health played into this, in my opinion. Uh, Reverend Starr? I'm, I'm a little off rather wanting to, to call it mental health. I could see that this person obviously had some issues seeing, you know, the areas that he went into and the people he targeted. But this is a general issue. This is something that the community and the country is dealing with. And I think the approach needs to come from the levels of government, putting things in place that would really help to prevent stuff like that from happening. It's a systemic issue that, like I mean, all community, I live and work in the French community, and every community, marginalized community, are facing the same issue. Okay, let's take a call from Ron in Guelph. Hi, Ron. Uh, um, hello, Alibi. Thanks for taking my call again today. There's two factors at play in all of these issues, and one of them is the justice system. And I wish Ari Goldkind was here. <laughs> so he seems to have all the answers, doesn't he? Uh, well, uh, um, not really. I don't know about that. He certainly has his views. Ron, thanks for your call. Let's go to Sita in Mississauga. Hi, Libby. Thank you so much. Hi, everyone. Um, lock up criminals and flush the key. We don't need politicians' speech, especially when something horrible happens. We need action, tougher penalty. And while they're in prison, put them to work that can benefit the society. The taxpayers don't have to pay for them to live, live, eat, and study, etc. Okay, Sita. Thank Thanks for that. Okay, Thanks. so uh, our callers are uh, pretty hardcore there. Uh, they have no insight whatsoever to what the issues are. <laughs> None. Okay. Zero. And and what what is your view of the issues, Joseph? I, I mean, we've heard you. That- I, 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 you know, lock up the criminals. I don't know what that means. It's absolute stupidity because, you know, uh, criminals are locked up. There's trials. People who commit offenses get long jail sentences. Look to the United States. Jail sentences are extremely punishing. You know, we have sentences in excess of 100 years or more. Do you think their crime rate is less? It's not. Deterrence is a fallacy. 
And tr- you can't lock up every person who commits any offense for the rest of their lives. It's just A, economically impossible, B, it's cruel and unusual punishment, and C, it will never solve the issues at play. There are societal issues here. There are marginalized communities. We have poor education. We have people who are struggling to make a living. As a result of that, they may also be suffering from mental health issues and all sorts of other pressures. We need to look at a number of levels in order to address why crime is occurring. We need to look at trafficking in firearms. And we need more uh, you know, cooperation with the United States and other sources to try and stem trafficking in firearms. But we can't just lock people up. Who's a criminal? Who defines that? That's what really worries me uh, when I hear these types of comments. It's just so unhelpful, and that's how we vote in government and politicians who really don't have answers but create legislation that just cause more problems. Reverend Starr, are you going to do anything differently as a result of this? Or uh, maybe a better way to ask the question is, do you uh, are, are you going to uh, come to this with a special response other than what you do in your good work every day? Well, the, the only other thing that I can do is write books, outline exactly what the issues are. I've already written the first one that talks about the issues and working on the second one now providing solutions from a community point of view, from things that I see happening every day. Like I'm working with this family right now who just lost their 15-year-old son. Oh, no, that, and that's the community horrible. And the community needs the support. Like the support that's there is just like within the community. The outside support that we need from the government, from the levels of government, working in conjunction with the community, that's not happening the way we would want to see it happen. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, and uh, Joseph, uh, we're going to start wrapping things up here. Uh, do you think that that will uh, address the situation or is there more that we need? I, I think there's a, a bit more, but but she's absolutely right. And And we've been talking about this for decades, frankly. So we need some more meaningful action at the grassroots level to work with at-risk youth uh, and to provide, you know, really robust solutions to providing solid education, health care, relief pressure on families that are quite vulnerable, um, and look at things in a, in a very micro but also a macro level. I do think also that when we're dealing with people who are habitual offenders, so this is where I'm going to agree to some extent with, um, I think it was Don, when we do, when we uh, do, well, sorry, what sorry, was John, it was John. John, I'm so sorry. I apologize. That, you know, if we do have some habitual offenders where they are particularly violent and showing a high risk profile, there are ways to deal with that in the justice system. But that comes after building up a number of convictions. And we have the dangerous offender legislation that's in play. And that can be used as well, uh, not just for people with sexual related offenses, but with very violent offenses. So I think we need to be measured and careful about it. But we don't just change our system of justice. We have to look at a number of factors and really have some meaningful, meaningful steps taken. Well, I hope we do have some meaningful steps taken. In the meantime, thank you so much, Joseph Newberger and Reverend the Reverend Sky Star. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Opportunity. Well. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about something much more pleasant, and that is the awarding of the Michelin stars to some of Toronto's best restaurants, and we'll tell you all about it when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio, heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. With great fanfare, last night, the celebrated Michelin Guide unveiled its roster uh, for Toronto restaurants receiving a coveted Michelin star. Good evening, everyone. I am Azalea Hart, and I would like to welcome you all to the historic Evergreen Brickworks for a celebration of the finest cuisine in Toronto. Okay. 13 restaurants were awarded the honor, which also usually brings a big bump in business. There was even one restaurant that got 
two Michelin stars, Sushi Masaki Seto, where a meal costs $700 a person. Additionally, there were seven Bib Gourmand Awards for more casual and diverse restaurants that don't break the bank. And I caution that the uh, moniker of moderate pricing is really a relative thing, you know. I was there last night with our producer, Zeev Hattie, and Renee Suen, the food editor at Blog TO and the Mid-USA and Mid-Canada Academy Chair of the World's 50 Best Restaurants. Renee, thanks for joining us. Libby, thank you so much for having me here. Um, really exciting day. We'll talk about aftermath after last night's big celebrations with so many great restaurants in the city. Oh, yeah. So uh, one of the things that struck me was they unveiled the restaurants with the, thir- the 13 with one star. You know, most of them, and the ones certainly that they announced first, are ones that are at the top of every other list. And I know it's an honor, and it's supposed to bring more business. But frankly, a lot of those restaurants, I wouldn't be able to get into for love or money anyway. And I don't know that they could handle more business. So what is this, at the end of the day, going to do? Uh, I well, I I think the, one of the main things with having a, a an organization or a guide like Michelin that recognizes um, any restaurant with some sort of accolade of a star or recognition, or in this case, uh, we also had a number of restaurants that got Bib Gourmands. Yeah. Um, that it's uh, acknowledgement, you know, acknowledgement of a team that has done a very good job. That consistently, I think that's the real keyword here, consistently performs and are able to cater to their guests or the clientele to give them a great experience. Because after all, if we look at the general landscape of Toronto restaurants, we have a lot. So how do you decide where to go, especially if you're one who is limited in time or even in resources? Uh, And so something like this helps a lot of diners to make those decisions. But at the end of the day, a guide like Michelin also appeals to the general public outside of Toronto too. So we're also talking about the possibility of visitors and and more, I guess, exposure in that sense. Maybe people f- coming all the way to Toronto to check out our fabulous food scene. So you're saying it it helps diners more than it helps the chefs and the restaurants. I feel like it's both because uh, both of like in the sense that if there are restaurants that aren't as well known or haven't in the past seen the volume of uh, of interest from from hungry eaters, uh, this will definitely get them on the map. Um, I'm certain that there's a number of restaurants that we've heard of, uh, or your re- or just, sorry, your audience has heard of, that they might have thought, oh, you know, it sounds nice. But now, given the fact that it's been recognized by another organization, it's like, you know what, maybe next time I make a decision to go out to dine, I'll give them a chance or try them out because... Someone says that they won't great. get in. <laughs> they won't well, get in. It's always, it's, like- it's always, you know, like uh, try, try your hardest and best. And there's always things called wait lists because you never know. There might be someone who unfortunately has to cancel and then that's going to be your lucky night. Some restaurants also don't take uh, all their tables as reservations. Some do leave uh, walk-ins. So there's always that chance there. So it's just kind of playing your cards. Uh, and hopefully if you don't get into there, there's a lot of other restaurants around the city that would definitely benefit from your, like, you know, basically interest and also visit. You know, there there's some criticism of this mm-hmm. saying, you know, we really don't need the punch <laughs> validation that we're all grown up. Uh, it's a diverse scene here. One thing I could not help but notice when they had the star winners arrayed on the stage, there was only one woman there, and she was a partner of a very famous chef. She wasn't really there on her... Well, I guess she was there on her own steam, but I'm not sure. Uh, I wasn't familiar with her name, though I'm no expert. So that's one thing. And the other thing, the other criticism that I've heard is that it's very heavily uh, geared to Eurocentric cuisines plus Japanese. And we saw, yeah, a lot of uh, Japanese food honored there. Uh, and I think that's true. The big bib gourmand kind of expanded it a bit. Um, I think at the end of the day, when you look at uh, restaurants that generally fall within the category of 
what most would consider as a special experience restaurants. Not saying that you cannot have an, a special experience um, in a casual environment, but in general, most are more refined settings. And and when we look at not just Toronto, just I guess in a worldwide sort of um, looking at that in that sort of scope, that majority do fall sort of more of the European or the Japanese, or in this case, I guess, as, as you had mentioned, the criticisms of certain types of classifications. Um, it doesn't necessarily, those are the only restaurants that are worthwhile of, of visits. Uh, but in general, when we are talking about special occasions, that is kind of what I feel as a society we have come to accept as being a a environment where you do go out of the way to um, experience. And part of Michelin, if we do look at the stars, is that every star level does signify, is this an establishment that someone will go way out of their way? Like they will travel specifically to just dine at the restaurant versus a casual, you know, Tuesday night where you might be rolling in uh, just to have a quick bite or a meal. Um, and that's kind of where most of the restaurants that fall under the stars or possibly to an extent, um, the big gourmands, uh, if they're in the higher range, will fall into a type of category like that. Everything else where it might be a very casual experience where you you know that you're just going in to grab a quick bite um, generally fall within what, I guess, Michelin does. You know, it's not really us. very casual, you know, a lot of those. <laughs> well, we had a sandwich shop, so Sumilicious oh. is there. Um, okay. And then there is also a fried chicken shop there as well, uh, as well as a diner. The Ace was there, also mentioned in the Big Gourmet. I talked to that guy. He was very, meh, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see if it's any good. Um, and I got a very interesting response uh, mm. from the restaurant the restaurateur that you introduced me to from Ossington, what's it called? Thai? It's called Favorites, uh, Favorites right. Thai. Uh, and I believe you spoke to Jonathan Poon, one of the partners. Okay, well, chef. so here's what he told me. I said, what is this going to do for you again? You know, on that strip, very hard to get into a restaurant. I, I don't mean to be complaining. Uh, and he said, the biggest issue now is getting staff, and he is hoping that getting his Bib Gourmand Award will attract good staff. And I, that's the one thing that a lot of restaurants also do notice when they do get that recognition. It's twofold. Uh, one thing, it can bring in business, and in that case, um, generate interest. So there might be staff coming in in this case because they want to work in an environment where it's been recognized by Michelin, uh, that they might learn something in that sort of setting. Or in another case, it's also pride within the team. This is recognition from someone saying that they all did a good job. I know a lot of times when we talk about Michelin restaurants, people talk about the restaurateur or the chef, but it's really the whole team, front of house, back of house, everyone that makes that experience for the diner. Hmm. And I, and I know that it's a big, uh, if you have a, want a career there, having, uh, have some work experience in a Michelin starred restaurant is, is a good thing. In general, it's like uh, getting, I, get, I feel like you'd say if you go away and do some training somewhere, or if you have a certificate, or um, if you've gone to school somewhere, it, it helps. It means that you've gone through that bit of extra that, um, that may be beneficial wherever you might end up being, whether you do a fine dining restaurant at the end or you're working somewhere very casual. We do have a lot of great chefs that have gone abroad or have worked in top places in the city and have decided to do something that might be a little bit more accessible for um, the majority of, of diners, uh, but still come in with that same training and that respect for food and service. Mm -hmm. I mean, there we've heard over the years a, a lot of issues with, I guess, the hierarchy in mm -hmm. kitchens. I just brought up that I didn't really see very many women there, mm -hmm. uh, though uh, there were some diverse cuisines that were represented, though, aside from Japanese restaurants, not really in the stars. Um, so in terms of the, uh, I, I think that's the one thing, if we look into our dining landscape, and this is less about Michelin and just in general, when we do look at what is uh, more refined, a lot of times we do see that on on top of many people's lists end up being these restaurants that that were rec like the ones recognized last night. That being said, I know that there are there was some concern that, you know, we have a great um, like great scene for Chinese food. And we do have high-end Chinese food and we do have high-end Indian food. And some of those 
were given the nod in the recommended list for Michelin. Um, this at the same time, we have to re- realize that this is the very first list for Michelin, which means it's an ongoing work in progress. So next year, hopefully as the inspectors or the reviewers go around and try more places, because we do have such a huge scene, um, that they will start to discover some of these other gems that many Torontonians love and know. I've heard other uh, restaurant owners refer to the actual cost of having a Michelin star, and I'm not sure uh, what that entails. I think they have to keep up certainly the decor and all of that. So, And some have actually said, you know, if I get one, I'm giving it back. And there were a few people there whose names were called, and they were not in the house. Uh, well, I do know that uh, one particular restaurant was, unfortunately, they I think they were out of town oh. at the time, and they tried to make it in. So it wasn't anything with the snub. Uh, I do know that there have been restaurants that have in the past mentioned that, you know, if they do get a Michelin recognition, that they would return it. And to be very honest, um, it's it's more of a, a, a public showing in that. I'm almost, I would say, uh, getting a little bit of media attention because if someone says, I like your, the shirt of, your color of your shirt the most, you're not going to be like, take that back. I don't want that anymore. It's just an acknowledgement by someone else that they've appreciated either what you're doing or what um, what you offer to the dining scene. So if they do, that's their own accord. Uh, but for some place like Michelin that has recognized, it is recognition. And it's also a great way to let the staff feel that, you know, they, they are appreciated. But what is the cost to a restaurant? And I think that the one thing that a lot of people are concerned about when they do get this recognition is to maintain, either maintain that status or um, that chase and the desire for more. So we did have restaurants that were recognized last night, quite a few with the one star. But there's no doubt at this point in time where some of them are like, you know what, we can aspire to But two. again, what what is the cost involved? So there? that would be everything from possibly, you know, maybe an upgrade of menu if they feel that food was one of the reasons why they did not get the status or the rating that they were hoping for. It could be um, service because even though Michelin does say that most of all the rating is based on food, it is the experience. So it could be training, it could be staffing. We know that right now, because of the pandemic, the industry has been hit very hard uh, in terms of having the number of people to come and staff just the restaurant. So that's tough. Um, so to be able to hire people, to be able to keep them, it's it does have a lot of stresses for the operators to to maintain that. So that would be two of the main things. And then it could be things like if it is aesthetics of the environment that people might feel pressured to have to now put in money to do that. And that's definitely, that's an added cost on top of a very, very costly business to operate and run as it is. Hmm. You know, uh, just wrapping things up, uh, the mayor, I mean, he was really behind this. I, he seems he's the kind of guy who would travel around with a Michelin guide. <laughs> and he said that was one of the first things he said when he was elected. Why don't we have Michelin uh, stars? But he said it's a big deal. So uh, what's your take? Is this how big a deal is this? Uh, well, for me, uh and anybody who loves the food and knows the food scene here in the city, uh, it's great. The reason is because we've always known that we've had so much to celebrate. Uh, the one thing is that sometimes it does help to have an outside force to also like basically validate that. Um, I know that a lot of people say we don't need external validation, but it doesn't hurt. And it also doesn't hurt when we are telling people that we already know and love and that we already do give thumbs up to that, you know what, you're not just in our minds the best, you're also recognized by the world as being the best or amongst the best. And it's something that really does just help us um, as a city who's who's always saying that we have a world-class food scene, just give one more notch in the belt. It doesn't mean that this is the only reason why we do, but you know we knew it, but now apparently the world is also interested and knows it too. Okay, Renee Suen, thanks so much. Thank you. And people, I will have a uh, condensed report on this in upcoming newscasts. And also, you can go to our website for the full list of the Michelin-starred restaurants and the Bib Gourmands. Uh, so 
you have that info from us. And right now we're going to take another break and we will be back. We'll talk about uh, all that cash the prime minister was handing out yesterday. Is that going to fix inflation when we return? You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Yesterday, the Trudeau government unveiled a $4.6 billion package of income-tested measures aimed at helping lower-income Canadians struggling with high inflation and the higher costs of living. They insist that the injection of new money into the economy will not make inflation worse. The newly minted opposition leader disagrees. thought Justin Trudeau might have learned the lesson uh, from the fact that I won the leadership. He suddenly took an interest in inflation. After two years of my warning him that his inflationary money printing deficits would cause this problem, he finally admitted that there is a problem. You see, the problem with spending more money as a solution to inflation is that it simply pours more gasoline on the inflationary fire. And that is exactly what Justin Trudeau continues to do. Well, there is dental care for families with kids under 12 that earn less than $90,000. It's worth up to 650 bucks a year per child for those earning less than 70 k And that, of course, was a promise to get uh, the agreement, the coalition, whatever you want to call it, with the NDP. There's a one-time $500 tax-free payment for low-income renters, and there's a doubling of the GST credit that would give couples with two kids up to an extra $467, and seniors would get $225 on average. So what do you think? Do you have plans for that money if and when it gets into your genes, because one thing about the liberals is uh, they announce things and can take a very long time to follow through. The numbers 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And now I am joined by Franco Terrazano, Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, and Lindsay Broadhead, Senior Vice President of Communications and Public Affairs, at the Toronto Region Board of Trade. Hello, both of you. Thanks for joining us. Good afternoon. Thanks for having us. Uh, Let's begin with Franco. So what is your uh, overall take on this? Will it go some distance to solving the problems of lower income people or will it just fuel inflation? Well, I think think the, the key thing here is that for the vast majority of Canadians, this is really not going to do anything to help with the rising cost of living. And and we are facing such a serious problem here in Canada where Canadians are really worried about whether they can afford to fuel up their car on the way to work. They're worried about whether they're going to be able to fuel up the car to get to the families on Thanksgiving. People are worried about whether they can afford the ground beef to put in the grocery cart. So we're facing a very serious problem. And this announcement, to me, shows that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is not serious about the rising cost of living. Um, look, we, you mentioned the GST rebates. Now, for some Canadians to get some of that money back uh, from being overtaxed, that is, that is going to make a difference. But here's the key problem. Number one is that it's only going to go to 11 million Canadians, which is less than a third of all Canadians. So two-thirds of Canadians are not going to see any benefit from that. But number two, if the government acknowledges that leaving Canadians with more of their own money is a good thing, then it should just cut out the middleman and cut taxes across the board. Lindsay Broadhead, what's your view? I mean, it is uh, a third of Canadians, but it's it's people at the lower end of the income spectrum who are obviously having a harder time dealing with all these higher prices. Yeah, and and uh, just to take a step back, our our philosophy at the board is fairly simple right now. Um, the OECD, just to throw a, a statistic because they're always fun, uh, at the table here, Canada has the lowest income per growth amongst the 38 member countries. So that's the way that we're trending. Sorry, our lowest what? The lowest income per capita. Okay, growth, per capita. Okay. Um, for of all the OECD member countries, so we're trending at the lowest rate uh, for the next decade. 
Um, what that means is that we need laser focus on our economic growth and competitiveness. So initiatives like this really focus on the demand side, so what people need and need now. But we're not looking, and uh, we need greater attention to the supply side um, to ensure that um, productivity is increasing and we're actually trending upwards. Uh, and we're, we're tra- changing, rather, the, the trend of our, our growth trajectory because we're spending more than we're making right now. That it, It's just those are the facts. So some of these initiatives um, uh, target, I think, the right population. I don't think uh, 11 million people is is anything to, uh, you know, be, be ashamed of supporting. Um, but they're short-term measures, uh, and they're going to be short-term solutions. And and this is the cyclical problem that, that we seem to be caught in with uh, this type of policy change. Uh, Franco, I mean, there are some economists who say, you know, the the measure doubling the GST credit is probably not bad. And uh, yeah, uh, I would agree that the sums mentioned here probably won't go that far in the context of the kind of price hikes we've seen. But uh, as I like to say, it's better than a kick in the head. <laughs> well, I'm glad you brought up that analogy because I have another one for you, especially when we're talking about lower income or modest income Canadians. Here's how the government is approaching this, the cost of living um, problem that we're facing. Essentially, the government is breaking your leg, giving you a crutch that is two sizes too small and saying, hey, look, we got you back to walking again. Well, okay. if the government, <laughs> see, I love the kicking analogy. So if the government was really serious about making life more affordable, which it should be, which it absolutely needs to be, then it would stop raising the cost of living. So when it raises its carbon tax three times during the pandemic, well, low and modest income Canadians who are already struggling to afford to get to work are hurt more. When the government brings in a second carbon tax through fuel regulations, well, guess who bears the brunt of that? The government's own analysis shows that its low and modern income households are going to be impacted the most by that. It's Canadians who are already living in energy poverty who are going to be impacted the most by carbon tax hikes. It is the single mothers, the seniors living on fixed incomes that are impacted the most by these carbon tax hikes. And in addition to that, we have seen payroll taxes go up three times during the pandemic. That's more money that's taken from small business, taken from struggling Canadian workers. And if all that drives you to drink, well, guess what? I've got more bad news for you because the Trudeau government has raised taxes on your favorite case of beer and your favorite bottle of wine. To be fair, Lindsay Broadhead, uh, there's huge inflation uh, in all of the developed world. There are a whole pile of reasons for it. It's the supply chains. It's the war in Ukraine. It's it's all of that. So uh, we're not alone in this. No, and I and I think actually the sitting government has done a number of good things um, that uh, incent longer term recovery. Um, has this all been communicated well? Uh, I would argue not, and I, I'm certainly not alone in that. I think uh, the sentiment from the government right now and its ability to relate to the population has been one of its its weaknesses. Um, but uh, the policy, some of the policies that have been put forth, um, I think, are starting to uh, have an impact here at home in light of, frankly, you know, global trends. Um, and we're we're doing better on many uh, accounts than uh, other countries uh, in the recovery period. So I, I don't fully agree with my colleague here in terms of uh, this wide cast of uh, criticisms. But going back to the announcement that that was made yesterday, um, again, it's the uh, how are we incenting long-term growth within our economy and not putting band-aids on things? So housing, for example. Um, uh, yes, a check to lower income uh, families and individuals is a short-term uh, help, but the money could be far better spent, we'd argue, um, on creating more housing supply. This is, uh, you know, the narrative that we keep going back to is that there simply are not enough houses uh, as it relates to our, our population growth. Um, dental plan, um, you know, this is going to be part of a longer process. Uh, there'll be some uh, supports here that are offered to workers and to smaller businesses. So 
that is a good thing, but it's still unclear how this is all going to unfold. You said it right off the top. This is a longer lead issue. Um, and, and as we said with GST, um, you know, this will have some short-term incentives uh, for the economy. It'll increase spending power for lower-income people, or lower-income consumers, um, which, is, which is fine. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, and, and uh, you know, Franco said this, it's a very expensive short-term solution when, uh, you know, those savings could be accrued in other ways. So it, it seems like a bit of a political play rather than a, uh, a, a true solutions-oriented play. Well, and, you know, I, I question how short-term. I, I only want to remind people that uh, when it came to the one-time 10% hike in old-age security for people over 75, it was announced before the 2019 election. Uh, I don't remember how many times it was re-announced, and people got it last July. That is July of 2022. Uh, and we know things are taking a very long time these days. Anything out of Ottawa, anything they're trying to do, be it a passport or whatever. So uh, just because they announced it yesterday, I I wouldn't hazard a guess about when people will actually get this relief. And all the more reason that it puts into question its connectiveness to the issue of inflation, right? Um, it, it This seems to be more of a... Uh, supporting, uh, you know, as, as they worded it, um, people who are uh, working hard to become middle class. Um, but I wouldn't connect it to inflationary um, levers at all. Uh, the, the impact there is going to be uh, incredibly low. I, I want to ask about something else. And uh, the when the Prime Minister announced that the, the day of mourning on Monday was going to be a national holiday, you know, at first we all thought, well, all federally regulated workers are, are going to get the day off. And we are that here, at least most of the people at our company is like, and we're tearing our hair out, of course, because we have yet another one coming and, and uh, we're all working at full tilt and, and uh, you know, for us, you know, just finding people to cover the Lou days is, is, uh, is an issue. And they, they backed off of that. So how important is, and even the banks are saying they're not giving their people a day off. Franco, uh, what do you make of all that? Well, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, we have a lot of work to do, that's for sure, here in Canada. Um, especially when it comes to government services. I mean, I was just at a passport office renewing my passport, and I think I was in oh, line good luck. For, for more than, yeah, I was in line for more than five <laughs> hours, and people were laughing at me saying, hey, you're here for a quick day. So look, we've got a ton of work to do here in Canada, but back to the broader issue of, of inflation. Now, yes, prices are going up around the world, but no, Canada is not doing good when it comes to our international peers. Now, the International Monetary Fund looked at this back in 2021, and it turns out only three countries of other 35 industrialized ones had higher inflation in Canada. And the reason is, is that you have a government with deficit spending of $300 billion in 2020, over $100 billion in 2021, borrowing money, more than $50 billion this year, and essentially just wants to keep, out, keep the fire hose going, giving money everywhere. Um, but in addition to that, Ottawa continues to stick Canadians with higher tax bills, while countries around the world like the United Kingdom, like South Korea, like Germany, like Netherlands, like Italy, like Ireland, like Israel, like India, like Peru, like many provincial governments who are cutting gas taxes, we see our federal government continue to raise gas taxes. So we have our government who is spending money like crazy. We have the central bank that printed $300 billion out of thin air, and we have our government continue to raise taxes. And that's why Canada is experiencing higher inflation than countries like Japan, who's experiencing 2.4% inflation, or countries like Switzerland, who's experiencing a little over 3% inflation. So while inflation is a global phenomenon, Canada is not doing well compared to a lot of our international peers. Uh, Lindsay, what do you say to that? Um, to which point? To the, uh, to the, 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 to the, the point about the raising or? taxes being responsible. Um, well, again, I mean, if, if we're talking gas tax, Solely, um, you know, the, the overall prices have gone down. Um, but yes, I mean, now is, uh, is not the time. I agree. It's not the time to be raising taxes. 
Um, and just going back to my original point, I'd like to see the federal um, coffers pointing towards innovation, pointing towards ways in which uh, we can increase our productivity as a nation. Um, we're, we're lacking talent. We're lacking people. Uh, we're not lacking uh, the ability to achieve success, but we need to be incented to do that. Small businesses need to be incented to grow um, and, and not stay below a glass ceiling that, you know, n- over 95% of our businesses face in, in this country. So there's a number of ways that we can be better spending these dollars um, and, uh, and get our eyes off of this short-term horizon. Um, as it relates to Monday, though, I, uh, you know, I, um, it, what, what I'm very struck by is Project London Bridge, as this has been called, um, has been in the works for, you know, half of my life. Um, uh, you know, I, uh, you know, God willing and, and thankfully for many of us, like that it didn't have to be enacted until, until recently, but this is something that should have been planned for in advance, coordinated by uh, the feds and, and various provinces so that we could all plan for it. Um, but obviously taking um, another day off is uh, a huge burden to our economy and to many businesses at a time when we're, we're trying to pick it up again. So, uh, you know, these things should have been planned for differently and communicated far better. And, and yes, just as an aside, uh, if you think we've got problems on this, there are, there's speculation that the cost of the Queen's funeral might push the UK, which is already economically not that uh, doing not that great, into a recession. And and they don't even have estimates. The Queen Mother's funeral was five point four million pounds. I think thirteen point something million dollars, and the Queen's will cost more. Silence. Yeah, these are these are these are huge numbers at a time when uh, you know I lived in the UK for for eight years, um, and it was at a time of boom. Um, it's again a very uh, innovative, exciting, growing place. Um, you know, I, I believe that the, the queen deserves her, her just due and, and uh, a proper, proper acknowledgement. Um, I also hope that, uh, many of these services and ceremonies are attracting, uh, people as often was the case during any, uh, big royal event. Oh yeah. Um, you can't get a hotel room apparently. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there are costs, but there's always huge insertion, uh, in, into the, the English economy. So, uh, you know, we'll we'll see what what happens in the end uh, when the final toll comes up, when the final bill comes up. Um, but yeah, this, these are these are hard numbers to digest at this yeah. moment in time. Yeah, no kidding. Anyway, uh, thank you very much, Franco Terrazano and Lindsay Broadhead. And that thank is you. thank you so much. That is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.